Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Thank you for that, Jim. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. And this week, it's another special because I've been going through some of my archives and came across a folder titled David Bowie. And being an obsessive David Bowie fan, um, I've been, in, in the last few years, I've been tracking down various people who had worked with Bowie. And um, yes, I got to interview them, which was quite extraordinary in so many ways. And this is one that I did with the amazing... Um, Mike Garson, who was the pianist for Bowie since well, like the early 70s, and he sort of was, the, uh, I think, believed he played with Bowie with Alicia Keys on Bowie's last ever public performance in New York. Um, this is an interview that I did with him. It was the 28th of January, 2016. And if you are paying attention, you'll remember and know that David Bowie passed away at the beginning of the month. So it was a particularly poignant interview, and I couldn't believe I managed to get an interview with Mr. Garson. So I've got this interview, but before we have that, I think we're going to play a track, some music indeed. Um, This is where Mike Garson became part of David Bowie's, I suppose, life really, on and off from the early 70s right through to his last public performance with Alicia Keys. Anyway, this is going to be time taken from the album A Lad Insane. Time He's waiting in the wings He speaks of senseless things His script is you and me Boy Time He flexes like a whore Falls wanking to the floor His trick is you and me Boy Time In quaaludes and red wine Demanding Billy dolls And the other friends of mine Take your time The sniper in the brain Regurgitating drain Incestuous and vain The many are the last names Oh, look for my watch This is Time. 
And that's David Bowie with the track titled Time from the album A Lad Insane. Hello, this is David Eastall, the C86 show. This is a special because I've been going through my archives and came across my folder titled David Bowie, who I suppose I was obsessed with. My first love was Mr. Bowie and my first single was Space Oddity. First album was Changes One. And since then, he was with me all through my life. So, um, yes, I sort of got quite a few interviews from different people who knew, worked and worked with Mr. Bowie. And this was uh, with Mike Garson. This was an interview that, um, I know I've already mentioned this, but I'll mention it again because I'm old and I like to repeat myself. This is the 28th of January 2016, and this is the first part of the interview where I said, um, in an interesting and uh, brilliant opening line, where where was he based? And I do believe it's in LA because we were having some exciting moments about what the different time zones were. And this was Mr. Garson's reply. Mike, take it away. I'm 30 miles north of uh, Los Angeles, uh, Hollywood, that area, but I'm out sort of in the country. Right. Oh, that's cool. Because actually one thing that we quite enjoy... Um, is the sort of Nevada, um, New Mexico, Arizona deserts. We sort of often come just for a couple of weeks a year just to go to those places because we just really like the national parks. And bizarrely, 
uh, one of the airports that we always fly into because it's quite nice is um, dear old Las Vegas because it's quite small and there's you know rooms are quite cheap even on the strip. So we we then sort of get a rented car and just drive around and look at places like the White Sands and places like that. So it's all. Oh, that's great! Yeah, we go there a lot. Also, that's 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 a great thing to do. I love the deserts. There's something about the expanse and the deserts that that really appeal to me, which we definitely don't get in this part of the country. <laughs> no, I used to live in Sussex, so I know that. Oh, you did? Right. Because in, in the 70s, around that period of time, yeah. Right. Well, yeah. Well, this is great. Well, just to um, just to sort of have the interview, I would just love to sort of talk a bit about your career and also obviously the work with David Bowie because... Cause for me, David Bowie was kind of the most important musician that I've known. I'm sort of in my 50s now, and the first single and the first album I bought was in the sort of kind of early 70s, which which were, you know, David Bowie's Changes. Well, there was Space Oddity, and the B-side was Changes, and then the first album was Changes, one Bowie. And, um, you know, I followed his career. So you, the news that um, he died was absolutely devastating. Yes, to uh, probably... Everyone who knew him at the same time is my feeling. We probably all went in shock simultaneously. I just couldn't. And and because um, he suddenly appeared in 2013 and it was like, wow, this is great. Because I'd, I'd gone to see you and the band on the reality tour at Wembley Arena and it was an absolutely incredible gig and everybody was absolutely rocking and it was like this is great and then there was the sort of the problems with the, the health and then the disappearance and I thought oh well that's that's life but then suddenly to reappear in 2013 was just one of the, another kind of shock that we all had. Yeah I mean David I think he saw the overview for a very long time. Yes. So then, yeah. So, so when did you, you know, because you obviously got together and first kind of met David in 70, 72, wasn't it? Yeah. When he, when they came to the States, I think he must've realized uh, for his first American tour with the spiders, I think he realized um, he doesn't have a pianist. <laughs> right. Because that, because it was quite, because it was quite interesting. Because having seen the, what the '60s was like with the sort of the whole Tim Leary tune in, turn on, drop out, the counterculture, and you know, I mean, David came from quite a folk background, and then he sort of got a, quite a good rocking band together for the Ziggy Stardust. But then obviously, he brought you in, which brought in quite a different element, didn't it, to the sound? It's a dangerous thing for anyone who brings me into a band because I'm going to shift it whether I like it or not or whether they like it or not. Right. Because inter It's just the nature of how I play and the um, force connected with that because, you know, that the, the, the nature of a pianist, you take up so much space and room because you have ten fingers, you're playing with two hands, you're controlling all the harmonies, and if if you're good at what you do, it 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 can't do anything but affect the music. Which you is... know, you put Bill Evans with Miles Davis is totally different than when it's with Wynton Kelly. You put Herbie Hancock with Miles Davis is totally different. You put Keith Jarrett with Miles Davis. Any of these great super pianists, you put Joe Zavanol with Miles Davis, it affects so deeply. And because. I had such a heavy background in jazz and classical, and David is so open. He wanted everything that I did that wasn't rock and roll. Right. One of the papers in England, I don't know if it was the Guardian or the London Times in 73, I remember seeing on top of the 
page on a Sunday morning. Uh, Mike Garson is the best rock pianist in the world because he doesn't play rock. And then it said David Bowie wrote that. Fantastic. Because interestingly, from from here, where I'm sitting in Norwich, 20 or 30 miles just south of here is is where Rick Wakeman lives, which is the man who you probably sort of took his hot seat, but not literally, but you know what I mean? He was the one who did Life on Mars and it, and various other bits with David. So obviously, um, you coming along, he, he didn't sort of have his such a avant-garde jazz background that you had, basically, did he? No, I mean, Rick is a great pianist, and I loved all his stuff he did for David on Hunky Dory. He was, I mean, amazing piano playing in the most perfect pop sense with a little classical twist. And of course, then all his work with Yes. <clears throat> but when David brought me in, he was going to get a portion of that, but he was going to get all this other stuff. And he was open for it. So um, we were off and running. But the crazy thing is, at the time, I was only hired for eight weeks. Right. And I ended up to be the longest standing band member and played his first American concert and his last American concert in 2006. That's- and in the first two years, between 72 and 74, 75, those first few years, he fired five different bands, and I was the only one that remained constant. Yes. So that was because uh, I was able to cross genres with him, whereas, say, uh, the Spiders could do one thing, you know, and uh, these other guys could do one thing, and Ainsley Dunbar could do one thing, and um, I was able to do the American thing. I was able to do the jazz thing, the classical, the gospel thing, the soul thing, uh, the avant-garde thing, you know, uh, the young Americans kind of playing. So it, 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 and that was just because that's how my training had been. I had no idea I was going to apply this to David Bowie because I didn't know who he was when I got the call. Right. Because I was a jazz musician and I wasn't interested. And he liked that even more. So everything turned out to be kind of serendipitous and the synchronicity of it was unbelievable because how would he find me in New York? There was a young lady named Annette Peacock who he was fond of, who was an avant-garde singer. I had just played on her album a few weeks before. He liked her. The album was called I'm the One. I played some crazy avant-garde piano. He imitated some of his singing after her. So she recommended me, and he was sold. So when Mick Ronson auditioned me at RCA Studios in 1972, it was a seven-second audition, because as soon as I played Changes, he said, you have the gigs. I said, I didn't even start. And I said, <laughs> well, I could tell. So so it was one of these things that uh, 100,000 hours of practicing that I had done prior, which I thought was going to be applied to the jazz world, uh, got applied to his music and on the Aladdin Sane album for sure he pulled everything out of me time has one way of playing on the song time I'm doing avant-garde ragtime stride piano playing of Aladdin Sane well that's totally avant-garde and then Lady Grinning Soul is totally romantic coming from my understanding of Chopin and Liszt and Rachmaninoff and Liberace so it has those elements Let's Spend the Night Together, which was the cover, had the crazy avant-garde stuff. Watch That Man is just straight rock and roll. So basically, everything I did, he had the capacity as a producer to pull out of me without actually even 
saying the words. So that's where the miracle lies. Because the next journey after after Aladdin Sane, which was such a sort of different feel to um, Ziggy, was was obviously the little kind of, uh, I suppose, the the little stopover, which was the pinups kind of cover album, wasn't it? And then he went into There Was Darmin' Dogs, which was kind of a, a colossal piece of work as well. Well, if you think of pinups, I mean, first of all, those were other English composers, right? But see Emily play, I'm still towards the end playing some crazy stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, it's still, and he does two two covers, I think, by um, Pete Townsend songs as well on that particular album, doesn't he? He what? He does two Pete Townsend songs, I think, on pinups as well, doesn't he? Yes. I can see for miles. And, and you know, we, we were experimenting even then. Uh, for example, we had um, the piano going through a Leslie speaker from the Hammond organs, those big speakers. and I mean, so think about that in 1973 to be doing things like that. And uh, it was, uh, there was not one album that I played on with him uh, that wasn't fascinating and each having something, let's say, different <clears throat> that he brought to the world. Absolutely. Amazing, you know? And as I was just saying just before we started the interview, you sort of were touring with him during all this time as well as being in the studio, and you'd sort of come to Norwich twice, which was in May 1973 as well, which you, did you say you could vaguely remember? Very much so. I mean, what were the audiences like at those particular gigs? Because, because obviously, looking back, everything, even punk, kind of looks nice now, but at the time, there's kind of quite an edge to it, and after the 60s and the hippie, period and all that stuff the 70s came along and and it was quite a different vibe because obviously with the glam rock phase and i sort of recently saw a review of a um the lou reed transformer album and they got completely panned by the Rolling stone magazine who said it's kind of artsy fartsy homo stuff which is this was in 72 in a magazine like Rolling stone so obviously Bowie and his look and his his kind of style must have shocked, in a way, that counterculture from the 60s. It did. But um, <clears throat> that's who he was personifying at that time, and it was part of the culture that was changing, and obviously the other groups that were doing it. It's just that he took it to a deeper level uh musically and also his look you know and of course he's a very handsome guy and you mix it up with all the other stuff that he was doing i mean it was it was shocking you know um so uh but a guy like him couldn't hold on to it more than that year or two and then all of a sudden he's off to something else absolutely do something else and then something else i mean that's what's fascinating about the overall picture, when I look at that arc after uh, 40 some odd years, that's to me what's very impressive. Well, absolutely. And, and one of the reasons it's impressive to me is I'm like that with my piano playing and my composing and the amount of concerts and gigs that I played with people. Before David, I had played with Martha Reeves from Martha and the Vandellas. Sure. I played with Nancy Wilson, the jazz singer. I played with Mel Lewis, Thad Jones, big band. I played with Elvin Jones, who was Coltrane's drummer. I played with Stan Getz. I played with Lee Konitz, who was a great 
Sax player played with Miles Davis. I played with Mike Brecker. I played with Randy Brecker. I played with Dave Liebman. Uh, I played with Freddie Hubbard. Played with Stanley Clark fusion music. I played with Jeff Beck and Simon Phillips uh, for a short period of time in 1980. Um, I played, I'm going over to Israel, and 10 years ago I played with Aviv Geffen, who's the most famous pop star rock guy in, in Israel. So, uh, a guy named Hote, who fashioned his whole music after David, was a Japanese artist who I work with. Then I played with the L.A. Philharmonic, and I played with a jazz classical group, and then I had solo piano concerts, and then I had a jazz trio on and off for 30 years. And it's still going. Absolutely. You know? uh, I played with Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails. I played with Smashing Pumpkins, um, a group called the Dillinger escape uh, plan which is wilder than uh, nine inch nails and, and i played in the movie gone girls that came out last year i played the piano for trent reznor um i played with gwen stefani on one of her albums so it's just it's almost like crazy and insane that this is how my career would have gone yes uh i actually played for over a thousand singers but david was by far number one, and the next one was like miles below it. So um, this is this is how it worked. And at the time, you don't think about these things. These were gigs for me. When I played on the Aladdin Sane album and that solo, I played it, and it was one take. I didn't hear that recording for 20 years. It wasn't until the Internet that I knew anyone even liked it. Right, that's amazing. Because uh, cause... I was a hired studio musician in London, at the time, and I made, I think, $150 on the whole album because the, the scale in London was half the price of New York. Right. So it's one of these things, it was just another good day playing music. Who knew that historically it would have this effect? Thank God I've lived long enough to see the effects of it because almost every day I get an email from somewhere in the world connected with Aladdin saying solo in particular. <laughs> Absolutely. Because cause you were just saying about being, you know, like you, you suddenly get hired and, and you're, you're on the gig and then suddenly that gig finishes and then you wonder what's coming next. Because with, with, with David Bowie, I mean, obviously you had, you had um, Young Americans and, and then after that there was, did you do Station to Station? God, I can't remember. No. Not Station to uh, Station. That was Roy, Roy Bitten who plays with Bruce Springsteen. I went back to playing jazz after the last album and the last tour. I was the musical director on the Young Americans tour. I had Luther Vandross, the great singer in my band, Dave and, Sanborn, this kind of a thing. And you had Herbie Flowers on bass as well, I guess. On the Diamond Dogs tour, when we came back from the West Coast to the East Coast, we already switched to another bassist. But we had Herbie, who was great, who also did Transformer, and Walk on the Wild Side, and Mick Ronson and David were very involved in that for Lou Reed. Um, Herbie did the Diamond Dogs tour, which went from the East Coast to the West Coast, but it was so expensive that we stopped that and came back with the Young Americans group, which was an all-American band by that time. So how did things change? You know, how did you find things when, because you came back with the Black Tie and White Noise album, and then obviously you were much more involved with Heathen and Reality. So how did, how did you find the transition from, you know, those decades and different albums? Because obviously quite a lot happened. You had the Berlin period with David Bowie, and then you had the 80s, which is always a bit tricky, and then Tin Machine. So obviously there had been quite a lot of water passed under the bridge. How did you sort of find each other? Well, first of all, 
I knew none of that work because I truly went back to the music I always was doing. I heard it, of course, afterwards, and Reeves Gabrels, who was playing with Tim Machine, uh, recommended continuously to David he bring me back in the band. And um, Reeves, when he was in high school, drew a picture of who he wanted to work with when he grew up, and it was David and me. Right. Which is a nice compliment. Is, he told me that at the end of the tour, <laughs> right? Not in the beginning, and um, so there was that. There's an album uh, that's really good and underrated, which came from a series, a British series in your country called "The Buddha of Suburbia." Oh yes, which was the piano playing on that was all over the place, and it was done in three hours in Los Angeles. David worked on that project a year, and he brought the tapes to Los Angeles in the early 90s, and he brought me in the studio, and I did it all in three hours. So there's amazing stuff on there. How it came back, you know, I think uh, my wife, who was my manager at the time, I think she reached out to him, or Reeves recommended another writer from France. There were a lot of people pushing me for come back, uh, I wanted to come back. Uh, it seemed right, and we sort of just got back together, and I did everything through the reality tour. And then if two live concerts that were just me and him in 2005, 2006, and then my work essentially was done with him. I'm not on the last two albums, which um, um, I'm living in California. He was in New York. I think he chose New York musicians and I also didn't think on the last album he wanted me there because he was so sick and we had a certain closeness and he was trying to keep that from everybody, his illness. So, um, but interestingly enough, there was a biography done by Cliff Slapper who uh, that came out on my life last year. It was put out on Phantom uh, Publishing, which is in your country. It's called uh, something like Bowie's Piano. Piano Man. Piano player, something like that. Piano Man. Piano Man, The Life of Mike Garson. And one of the things the biographer asked me to do, Cliff, who's a pianist himself, uh, he uh, actually asked me to uh, go through 50 songs or so that he felt impacted Bowie's music that I played the piano on. This is about a year ago. And I went through all of that. And uh, I wrote David saying, oh, my God, some of the stuff we did together was phenomenal. And he wrote me immediately back saying, Mike, we did a great, great body of work. But I can't explain to you, but it sounded final. Right. Yes. Only two weeks ago did I find out why it was final. Yes. But I remember telling my wife there was something about the email that was so acknowledging and validating of what we did, but it was also final. A sense of closure. A sense of closure. Yes, I know. Because he knew he was going to die at that point. He knew for 18 months. He did. And I mean, when you, I mean, you know, with that amazing kind of relationship and body of work that you've done and, and all those different albums and decades and, and also people's personal life that changes with age. I mean, when you sort of go back into a band, you know, because with, with the Rolling Stones, you have the Rolling Stones. With David Bowie, you had David Bowie and then who he wants to work with. And then, you know, he picks various members after, obviously, the Spiders for Mars kind of 
goes. How does how does the process, the creative process, then work when you go into the say the studio and you see different people and you all have to sort of fit together? I mean, what what is the kind of journey that you're you're on at that point? It's um, fascinating because number one, you're not in a comfort zone, and he was not a fan of putting people in a comfort zone. He liked it to be a little uncomfortable. Uh, he was the ultimate casting director. Everyone he chose, I'd say 95% of all his choosing of musicians through his life were all fantastic. Whether it's Rick Wakeman or Carlos Alomar or Nick Ronson, I mean, forget about it. He just had an incredible ability. So once he had that, there's a certain trust. So when you're in the room with, when I was with Herbie Flowers, we connected with jazz, we connected with rock, we connected with pop. When I was in the room with Reeves, we connected avant-garde-wise and jazz-wise and pop-wise and rock-wise. And when I played with the Spiders, I knew it was English rock. I had to play a certain way. When I played with Dennis Davis and Willie Weeks, I knew it was another way. Uh, fortunately, like I said before, my training was very wide in music, and I was very grateful to have the greatest teachers back in the 60s. So I learned so many styles that uh, some people put me down for it, because in the 60s I was called eclectic, and they said it like I was uh, had leprosy or something. <laughs> and, uh, but it was just that I have never had any boundaries with my music. I just saw it as music, and I think that's where David and I were our minds probably met and which is probably why I persisted longest with him because I could hang in there and when I would be with new musicians I would always know how to find the coordinates of that space and group it might take a song or two or a rehearsal or two or a tour or two or a few songs on a, a recording project but sometimes it would happen instantly it's it's a telepathic intuitive thing that certain musicians and artists have and certain ones don't but see david knew who had that he didn't maybe express it in words but he knew so yeah. when i would work with luther vandross or michael Kamen or mick ronson whoever i was with i knew what they needed and wanted with a little conversation with a little hanging out with a little jamming and i could find those coordinates that's what my gift is as a musician and pianist so um, I never had problem fitting into a group as long as I know the, um, let's say, as long as I know the, um, the style. If it was like uh, some kind of uh, Renaissance music that I hadn't played, I would have to pass on it or learn the music. But in the case of all these different musicians and people in Bowie, I had studied all that stuff, so I was... It was in my fingers, in my cellular memory. Sure. And did you get a chance? Because I'd, because I sort of, I saw um, Bowie in the reality in two thousand and three, and also I saw him at the Glastonbury Festival in two thousand. Did you? Were you part of the band during that particular tour? Because you absolutely. Because you were at the BB, you were at Bowie at the B, weren't you? When he did that one um, to a small audience, but then he played on the Glastonbury Pyramid stage, didn't he as well? I was playing on that, both of those, and also uh, the reality tour. I did all of that. It was, a, it was amazing. A lot of people kind of only want to know David from the 70s, but 
every period was great. It's just that the 70s had something to do with the culture and the zeitgeist and all this kind of stuff. So that was his period, just the way the Beatles were a few years before that. But um, when he did it at other times, while it might not have been part of what was going on in the culture, the music was great. And now I think because of his passing, we'll find tons of music uh, that people never heard that they're going to say, oh my God. Plus, from this point on, thousands of singers will be covering his music for the next 20, 30, 50 years. So people will really get to see the giant he was. I mean, they knew it when he was alive, and of course he was a bit of a hermit at times and disappeared. But the bottom line is... um, he he's left us a gigantic legacy, and we need to dig a little deeper uh, to to see what that is. Forget about the amount of outtakes I've done with him on songs, no less uh, all the other producers that work with him and other musicians, because I'm not on everything. Sure. You know, I'm, on the, I'm on most albums of anyone, any one individual, but there was plenty of things I'm not nothing to do with part of. And, you know, Tony Visconti would have a whole collection of stuff and what have you. So we're going to be treated to a lot of good stuff as the years go on and things will be released that were maybe hoped to be released that didn't get released and and all kinds of other things. I mean, I've seen this happen with Miles Davis and Bill Evans, all, all my heroes after they pass, and Thelonious Monk and Duke Ellington. Well, if it happened with them, it's going to happen with David in spades because he was a, a, a pop culture figure, whereas... Um, these others were, were had a much smaller audience. The jazz world and the classical together maybe constitute two percent of the listening public. The rest falls under pop. So um, we're in for treats. Absolutely, because exactly. I because th- I think what you were just saying a bit just back there. One thing that I think being a, a person who followed Bowie from that sort of early seventies right through right to you know a couple of weeks ago was that um, he. I sort of every album that came out, you know, I felt duty bound to sort of get it and listen to it and 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 go through it. And some was mostly was great. Some was a bit tricky in the eighties. But the one thing that always stuck in my, you know, one thing that I was always conscious of that actually with all those different styles, he introduced me to an awful lot of things that I thought, oh, I better go and listen to Philly soul music now because you know David Bowie listens to Philly soul. Though then I had to go and listen to Krautrock because you know that was the Berlin trilogy. And then I had to go and listen to I didn't have to, but I wanted to because I thought, oh, if he's been listened to, I should go and listen to it. So I think the thing that David Bowie did for me was just introduce me to so many things because I kind of wanted to know where he was getting his kind of inspiration from. And that was always fascinating. Well, to your credit, you did the right thing. I mean, I was on stage with him one night and come off the stage and we're playing in England. He said, do you know Vaughan Williams? He's a classical English composer. I said, a little bit. He said, well, go check out this symphony, blah de blah and take those first four bars and incorporate it in the introduction to one of your pieces tonight. <laughs> oh, my God, you know, I mean, think of that. And then we were doing uh, Earthling album, and he said, go listen to the Stravinsky Octet. You know what? I said, well, I haven't heard it since college. So go listen again. I went down to the record store. There was such thing as record stores at the time. Went down to Tower, bought the recording, listened to it, and then I put that intention and that style into... Battle for Britain, or what was called the letter. Right. And so he was always on the cutting edge when we were driving the limousine in the 70s together. 
Uh, he was always picking my brain, and he'd have headphones on. He'd be listening to Aretha Franklin. We were preparing for Young Americans. So he did his homework. He loved that music. The American music uh, really affected him, Little Richard and all that kind of stuff. And yes, he always... All things that... But it's interesting because he always mentions Little Richard and Lemmy, who was in Motorhead, always that was the first you know artist that he mentioned as well so obviously both people from a certain generation little richard was definitely the person but going well, back the same with same with mick jagger yes so so it is little richard that's the man but the one thing just uh, you know almost final here um because when i saw the reality tour there was one album that came out in the 80s which was tonight which probably wasn't one of the greatest albums but you redid a version of love in the alien and that was so well done and it made that song which was good absolutely fantastic and you must have been really proud of that well Embarrassingly enough, or not, I don't know, I never heard the original. <laughs> well, you know, here's the thing. I, I, I'm his longest standing member, and I would only be able to attest to knowing a little less than one-tenth of his repertoire. Right. <laughs> but anyway. So think about that. But what I will tell you is in the 80s, he had a hard time after Let's Dance. Yeah, And what he said to me in the studio when we were working on um, Hooter of Suburbia or something else, Black Tie, right around that period, he said, Mike, I had a rough time in the 80s. The record companies after Let's Dance wanted all this commercial stuff. I didn't want to do it, but I did it, and I lost who I was. I need to put a band together of all the most influential musicians in my life. So I'm calling on you, Brian Eno, Reeves Gabrels, Carlos Alomar, Ertl, and we're going into the studio in Montreux, and we're going to do very experimental, improvised music, and that turned out to be the Outside album. And the six of us each got one-sixth composition credit because we created these as improvisations. So he knew... He made a blunder, but there's really no blunder. He had to do that. There's even some good music in the 80s that he did. There's a couple of great songs, Absolute Beginners and this and that. Oh, yes. And uh, Well, I, um, I... So... Yeah, and I always heard all his interviews, well, I tried to hear as many as possible, and I realised that, you know, that's just what happens in life. You can't... Not every decade can be perfect. In the 80s, I've listened to every other musician from Robert Plant to... I don't know, lots of people, Rod Stewart, who have all just said, oh, can we just skip the 80s when we're looking back at my career? Because it was a tricky, it was a tricky decade for most people. And I think with David, after Let's Dance, he, you know, he was just in a bit of a colder sack. See, I knew the 80s, I knew the 80s were messed up. So all I did is practice the piano in that decade. <laughs> waited for the 90s. That was probably a good idea. I waited actually. for the 90s. I, I I, I used to practice four, six, eight hours a day. I, I hardly worked. No. And I have to say, on the ice... I didn't, see, there was nothing in the air happening. You know, I couldn't feel anything. Now I can feel a lot. The 90s, I felt a lot. And I couldn't feel anything then. The last several years, David felt a lot. Absolutely. You know? so, it, these things are not personal in a way. You know, we take credit as the artists and musicians, but to be honest with you, we're just... Uh, channeling it and we're the receipt point of something that's in the air you know he has a song something in the air you know so we're just the receipt of that and if you're vulnerable and intuitive uh you'll pick up on it absolutely that's amazing and what what was your what's one of your sort of fondest memories of being with david 
Glastonbury was hysterical because I looked out into the audience, saw 100,000 people. Willie Nelson just finished playing with with a with a closing act, and um, David looks at me and says, "Go out there and warm the audience up for me. I want to see how they feel. Go play some piano by yourself." <laughs> yes, I was. I and was he sent me out there. I don't know. I don't remember if I played Foggy Day in London Town or Green Sleeves. I did something that was bizarre. And I was out there, and then the band came out. So he wanted to see how they felt. So I was the guinea pig. You were. <laughs> <laughs> but it was an amazing night, because we were there, and uh, it went in from after you. It went into Wild is the Wind, which was a beautiful opening opening number, which was, um, it was one of those magical Glastonbury nights on the, on the Pyramid stage with the you know, Glastonbury tour behind it. It felt like there was a lot of good energy that night. It was an amazing concert. I remember it like it was yesterday. Yes, we all will always remember that. That was great. And I must admit, I you know also saw you on um, two thousand and three with Reality, and that was also an amazing concert. Well, if you remember on the most of the, those shows, the encore was the Disco King, just me and David. Yes, it was beautiful. It was an amazing tune from the Reality album that was very jazzy, just me and him. And then uh, we had done two other versions of it on the Earthling album, not released, and Black Tie, White Noise album, not released. Great versions, but he wasn't happy. Someday we'll see those come to life. Fantastic. Well, look, Mike, thank you ever so much for taking time out to speak to me. It's been really, really special. And um, I'm really grateful because, you know, I mean, he meant so much. And, and obviously... Yeah, again, you know, like what I was saying earlier, that he introduced me to so many people, and one of those was you, because it was suddenly, as a little boy, looking at the sleeve, going, who's Mike Garson, and what's this piano sound? And it was like, yes, that's the Mike Garson kind of jazz, kind of avant-garde quality. And it was it was just, again, you know, it was like another door opened in my life, which was, which was fantastic. Well, that's good news. The good news is that there's a lot of music I haven't released. I've maybe released, you know, a couple of hundred of my pieces through the years, and very small circles, but I've written over 5,300 pieces of music, so there'll be a lot of things released during my lifetime and, and way after, because I've written tons of classical music. Half of those 5,300 are classical, and the rest are a mixture of jazz and pop and fusion and, and what have you. So uh, I'm still a work in progress. I don't actually feel I've written my best works yet, but I'm continuing. You know, I did an album called The Bowie Variations, which was pretty advanced, and it's just solo piano. Nobody hardly heard that. Eventually, people will hear that. I'm hoping to do another Bowie tribute album, but I'm waiting for the exact inspiration. But I've been putting a lot of things up on my official site on Facebook where I'm finding bonus tracks with me and David in different special moments. So I've been offering that out to the fans, and I've been doing Periscope, which I'm doing this Saturday at 1 o'clock. I'm doing a new version of Life on Mars, solo piano. So this is the way that I could pay it forward you know, because I have insights that nobody else has, but then so does Ken Scott and so does Visconti and so does, uh, you know, Carlos Alomar and, and, yeah. and, and uh, I suppose you know, yeah. Earl Slick and Reeves. We each have, Gail and Dorsey, we each have stories because we each had our private moments with it. And that was me in conversation with Mike Garson. Um, thank you for listening. That, that's all I can say. If you still are, you might have just turned off. Who knows? And who cares? Anyway, if you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86show. I will be here, there, and everywhere. Um, in the meantime, I will leave you with one more song. Uh, again, taken from A Lad Insane. This is 
Prettiest Star. Have a great week.